he's an exaggeration in some ways, but there's an awful lot that's very real about him in terms of some lawyers I've run across in my life. I, I wonder what you think about Saul Goodman as a real character, if there are lawyers out there who are like him. Certainly Saul Goodman has jumped the shark in terms of ethics, but Jimmy Miguel, I think, is someone who inherently has a bit of larceny in him. He, we know he was a criminal before he became a lawyer, but I think he's someone who has a good heart and is trying to do the right thing. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and where I also practice law. Before we introduce today's topic, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is an online practice management program for lawyers. You can find out a lot more about it at www.goclio.com. Well, Breaking Bad was one of the most popular television shows in history. Uh, In it, a likable, albeit uh, ethically challenged character emerged in season two and gave the audience some degree of comic relief. Of course, we're talking about Saul Goodman, which, uh, as good writing would have it, wasn't even his real name in the show. Saul, also known now as Slippin' Jimmy, was known for skirting the lines of ethical corruption uh, on his best day while flat out crossing them on his worst. Despite his uh, various flaws, the audience came to love this character so much that a spinoff was born featuring him as the main character in a show that debuted this year called Better Call Saul. Taking place uh, before he meets up with Walter White and Jesse Pinkman, The show recaps the history of what made Jimmy McGill into Saul Goodman a uh, ethically challenged, I guess, advocate for the unlawful uh, with a a number of uh, ethical uh, issues raised along the way. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the ethics of Saul Goodman, and uh, we're fortunate to have with us today to help us do that, Nicole Hyland. Nicole writes a Tumblr called The Legal Ethics of Better Call Saul, which has been featured in in Slate and Above the Law. Uh, She has years of experience in the area of legal ethics, in addition to her being a partner in the litigation and professional responsibility groups at Frankfurt Kernet. Nicole is uh, chair of the Committee on Professional Ethics of the New York City Bar Association, co-chair of the Ethics Committees of the Women's Bar Association of the State of New York, and on the board of the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers. And if that was not enough, she's also the co-author with Professor Roy Simon of Simon's New York Rules of Professional Conduct Annotated. She's on the editorial board of the New York Legal Ethics Reporter and a contributor to the Legal Ethics Forum blog. So if anybody can help us uh, evaluate the legal ethics of Saul, it's uh, Nicole Hyland. So welcome a lot to the show, Nicole Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. Well, let's just start by uh, having you tell us what inspired you to start writing this this blog. Really two reasons. 
uh, first of all, I do teach and write a lot uh, about legal ethics, and I find that it can be a dry subject for some people. So I try to use colorful examples when I'm, you know, teaching and writing about this about the subject. And of course, Saul Goodman and the show provide such wonderful examples. Uh, but really, what compelled me to write about the this issue is, and I'm, I'm a big fan of the show. I was a fan of Breaking Bad, uh, and I and I have a tendency when I really get into a show to go out there and listen to the other podcasts that talk about the show and read about it. And I just found that when whenever commentators would turn to the subject of ethics and whether Saul or as he's now known in the show right now, Jimmy, whenever he would do anything that sort of seemed questionable, they would start talking about, well, is that permitted? Is it not? Is it okay? Can lawyers do that? And they would not, you know, understandably often get it wrong. And I just would sort of find myself in my head sort of yelling, <laughs> yelling at them going no or yes, or arguing with them in my head and thinking, I think I just have to get this out of my head and onto some other medium. And I, so I started writing, writing about it. Uh, initially was posting my posts on the legal ethics forum and some other places. And then I just decided to collect everything onto the Tumblr blog so that it was all in one place and people could easily find it if they wanted to. Well, it's really fun to read. I, I got to say it's, uh, and for our listeners, it's ethicsofbettercallsaul.tumblr.com uh, is where you could find it. I have to confess that that I uh, did not start uh, watching the show when it debuted earlier this year and uh, been been binging on it a little bit over the last uh, week or two, trying to get caught up, uh, and still haven't watched all the episodes. Um, oh, okay. I, I, I don't so, want to spoil yeah, anything for you. Well, that no, that's okay. I, as an interviewer, I, sh- I should be better prepared. I felt it was my obligation to sit and binge on Better Call Saul for for a few days. Beats practicing law, I can say that. But I, I have to say, in watching it, I found myself wondering how many. You know, sure, he's an exaggeration in some ways, but there's an awful lot that, that's very real about him in terms of some lawyers I've run across in my life. I, I wonder what you think about about Saul Goodman as as, as a real character, if, if there are lawyers out there uh, who are, are like him. I think you have to distinguish between Saul Goodman, the character in Breaking Bad, and Jimmy McGill, uh, who is, you know, a much earlier iteration of a person who becomes Saul Goodman. And, and I think even Jimmy would admit that Saul Goodman is not really who he is. He's a character he puts on and presents to the world. Jimmy McGill is who this person really is, and he is certainly evolving and will eventually you know, evolve into Saul Goodman. But Jimmy McGill is, I think, you know, in many ways very typical. Some of the more extreme behavior that we, we can get into talking about, um, you know, I, I think is fairly exceptional, but a lot of the things that he does, a lot of the little ethical quandaries he has to deal with and, and his conduct is, is typical of the things that, you know, lawyers face every day, issues of confidentiality and, and advertising and prospective clients and, you know, lawyers face these questions on a daily basis. So what's your overall assessment of of Jimmy slash Saul? You know, how do you rate him overall as a as an ethical lawyer with some lapses or as a unethical lawyer uh, 
who uh, <laughs> occasionally does the right thing. Where does he where does he fall in your judgment? I think even you know certainly Saul Goodman has has jumped the shark in terms of ethics, but <laughs> you know by the time we get to Breaking Bad, but Jimmy McGill, I think, is someone who inherently has a bit of larceny in him. He, we know he was a criminal before he became a lawyer, a, a petty criminal. Uh, and, but I think he's someone who, who has a good heart and is trying to do the right thing, uh, at least at this point in the show, but just constantly has to battle with that side of his personality that has a hard time resisting you know, a scam. What do you think is the appeal of that character. I mean, to, to give him his own series as a spinoff suggests uh, he was wildly popular when Breaking Bad was showing. Why, why are people so fascinated with Saul Goodman? I loved him, even on Breaking Bad, when he was so unethical. Um, as, as an ethics lawyer, that might sound strange, but uh, he's funny, he's charming, he's clever, he's a great talker. You know, he, he's always talking himself in and out of situations, and uh, he's just very appealing. You know, it's also interesting reading your blog about him because you often give him credit for doing the right thing. Uh, it, it's not all—it's not all a bunch of mess-ups uh, so far. And in fact, I, th- I think you've used the word "competent" uh, a number of times at your blog in reference to him, or at least in re- reference to uh, things he's done. That's really true. I do give him credit. I do try to give him credit because I am hard on him a lot of the time. So when he does something right, I really do try to highlight that. And one of the areas where I've seen that the most is with his competence. He is naturally good at being a lawyer. And uh, even when he doesn't have technical competence in, in a particular area, he's willing to learn. And he is a great listener when he's talking to a client and getting information. He really has a great instinct for, and perhaps because he has a criminal background, he has an instinct for noticing things. So, for example, at the when he meets with his elder law client at the assisted living facility, you know, he's asking her information about her estate planning and picks up on something she says that is the thing that leads him to investigate the assisted facility and learn that they're engaged in fraud. And so a lot of people that might have just gone over their heads, but he notices it and he digs into it and follows through with it. So he's very good at, in, at, at listening, at noticing things, and at investigating things. And you even suggest, I think you even suggest that he seems to have a natural propensity or national talent for elder law, for, for working with these clients. But it did raise... Uh, one of the first of many uh, ethical conundrums that you wrote about, I think, which was which was the Jello cup uh, incident. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what what you thought about it. Yeah, well, uh, just to comment on his natural affinity for elder law, you know, I love you know even Jimmy says old people love me when he's trying to you know defend against the injunction uh, that the assisted facility tries to bring against him, and he wins on that. And his clients do love him; that's clear. So as the show progresses, you see that. But yeah, the Jell-O Cup was, that was an advertising and potentially a solicitation issue. He had created these, had these little Jell-O Cups manufactured, which he had the assisted facility people handing out. He wasn't actually handing them out, which was interesting, but he was present uh, while they were being handed out. and, And he wasn't specifically asking people to hire him. He was making comments about, 
you know, going around introducing himself, and when he shakes someone's hand, he says, oh, watch out, that's my will-writing hand. So he doesn't actually offer to be, you know, to, to be hired as an estate planner or elder lawyer, but he hints and indicates that that's what he does in various ways. The Jell-O cup comes into play as the, you know, clients of the assisted living facility are eating the Jell-O. They get to the bottom, and he even says to them, make sure you get all the way to the bottom, and right at the bottom it says, need a will, call McGill, and with his phone number. So what I comment on in, in my blog is, you know, first of all, it's, it is lawyer advertising, at least under the New York definition it would be, uh, because it is the primary purpose of this material, this communication that he is sending out to these people is to, for the purpose of getting business, getting clients to hire him. So he doesn't technically comply with the advertising rules, which would require him to put attorney advertising on it and to have his uh, law firm address, principal place of business um, address on the Jell-O cup. Maybe we should just stick with that episode for a second, because another thing you've written about in your blog is is his his preparation, really, for that visit to the uh, assisted living facility that he goes to. He kind of decides he's going to emulate Channel Matlock, I, I guess, and uh, dresses like him, tries to sort of uh, adopt his persona. And uh, you address the question of whether that's appropriate. Yeah. That's the second time he takes on another lawyer's personality. The first is when he tries to imitate Hamlin. And then the second time he then thinks, well, I want to reach out. I want to be appealing to old people. And this is sort of a standard, you know, kind of meta joke and that, that old people love Matlock. Uh, that's been around for a while, and I think the the writers decided to do a play on that by having him examine and look at Matlock and and imitate him and the way he dresses and kind of his little folksy mannerisms. And I've been asked this, you know, is that ethical? And I don't have a problem with him doing that. He's not imitating Matlock to such an extent (laughs) that people would mistake him for Matlock. You know, he's not suggesting that he is Matlock. So I think, you know, all of us, when we become lawyers or enter any profession, have to put on some kind of persona and costume that isn't necessarily who we are in our real daily lives. And so, you know, he's just being much more uh, strategic about it, but I don't think it's unethical. Yeah, of course, the first one that you alluded to uh, when he adopted the uh, dress and style uh, of Hamlin and even apparently the trademark of the Hamlin firm was for a much different purpose. Uh, he was really trying to provoke a response, perhaps, or at least get even with somebody. What about what about that whole incident with with, with the billboard and uh, the picture of him dressed uh, to look very much like more or less his nemesis, I guess, uh, in the in the series. The funny thing about that is that his motives aren't totally clear and seem to evolve, or at least are unraveled throughout that episode. Because initially, you do think it's only because he's upset at Hamlin and he wants to sort of get back at him. But then you realize later he's staged this entire publicity stunt around the billboard. So the whole idea of provoking Hamlin led to the court hearing on the trademark issue, which led to him being ordered to take the billboard down, which then led to him being able to stage this incident, uh, which got him all this publicity and, you know, some business from clients. So, what was his real motivation? Did it evolve or was it always a plan for him to use this to market himself? You know, it's hard to say, but that in the end, that's how he ended up using it. And one could argue that it was deceptive, a form of deceptive advertising for him to, to do that. So 
So technically that could have violated the advertising rules. His motives are often ambiguous, it seems. Yes. Lots of people's motives in this show have been ambiguous and have been uncovered slowly. Uh, We need to take a short break, so stay with us, Nicole. We're going to be right back after a few words from our commercial sponsors. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio, Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Uh, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and with me today is Nicole Highland, author of the blog, The Legal Ethics of Better Call Saul. And we're talking about the legal ethics of Better Call Saul. You know, I've been throwing out a couple of uh, a couple of the incidents that have happened in the show, but I wonder what for you was the most difficult to dissect of the of the uh, episodes you've written about? What's what's been the most maybe uh, ethically uh, gray incident that you've written about? I think one of the more difficult ones, and one I actually even just glossed over and perhaps didn't even answer, was fairly early on in the series, there's a character, Nacho, who approaches Jimmy uh, to conduct this scam against the Kettlemans, who have been accused of embezzling about $1.5 million from the county. And so one of the questions as that arc developed was, whether or not Nacho was Saul's or Jimmy's client, and at what point did he become the client so that Jimmy had an obligation of confidentiality towards him. And I felt that that was a question that was a little bit open and, you know, different people could differ on the stage at which he became a client. Because if he became a client at the initial meeting in the office, in Saul's office, then Saul would have had a duty of confidentiality toward him not to reveal information or not to disclose certain information. But if he was not a client at that point, which arguably he wasn't because he wasn't approaching Jimmy to hire him but to you know, engage him in a scam, then Jimmy would be freer to disclose certain information uh, in order to hopefully protect against anything bad happening to the Kettlemans. So that, and then of course, under different rules, under the New York rules versus New Mexico's rules, the exceptions to confidentiality, which might give Jimmy the ability to disclose information, are different. So depending on whether you be under New York confidentiality rules or New Mexico, his obligations and what he's permitted to disclose are slightly different. So I thought that was a little bit tricky there. 
Yeah, and of course, you're writing based on the New York rules. You've made that pretty clear, although you'll, you'll occasionally uh, reference the New Mexico rules on your blog. Yeah, well, this was one time when I did because I originally did my analysis under the New York rules and someone pointed out that it might be different under New Mexico. So I, I did take that extra step at that point to go and research New Mexico. And, and I thought it was a great opportunity to talk about how these rules can differ from state to state. Well, another one of those sort of, I guess, gray incidents regarding a lawyer-client relationship, but maybe it's not so gray at all, but was when Saul visited the Kettleman's. This is a, a man, a, what was he, a former state treasurer or, or municipal treasurer or something like that? Town, town treasurer or something? Yeah, who county had, treasurer. County treasurer, okay, who had uh, is, is being accused of embezzling uh, well over a million dollars, one and a half million dollars or more. And uh, when uh, Saul goes to talk to them and, and Mrs. Kettleman tells Saul, you know, in a sort of insulting way that uh, he's the kind of lawyer uh, criminals uh, would hire, guilty people. Is that what she said, would hire? But uh, she offers him some money to basically go away, I think, is the, is the way to put it. And you later discover that he's he's taken the money. You see him sitting in his office counting through this pile of money. I don't even know what to make of that, but what did you make of that that whole exchange? Yes, I do talk about that. That was episode four, and I do talk about what happened there. The way I broke it down was she wants to give him the money. He says, I can't take a bribe. He keeps saying, I can't take a bribe. And then finally he says, I can't take a retainer. And that's what leads to her making the comment, well, you're the, you know, we don't want to, basically, we don't want to hire you because you're the kind of person that guilty people hire. When he then finally, t- you know, you see in the in a later scene that he has taken the money, he then sits down and tries to rationalize it by treating it as if it's a legitimate fee for his legal services. And you just see how absurd that is as he breaks it down. So I actually talk through, first of all, can he really treat it as a retainer? And I argue no, because no attorney-client relationship has formed, and she made clear she didn't want to hire him. So, you know, an attorney-client relationship is a contractual relationship to which the client has to agree, and that didn't happen here. So then I said, okay, so even we, if we did treat it as a retainer, does it comply with rules about, you know, amounts of legal fees and fees being reasonable and expenses being appropriate and not fraudulent? And if you go through and just sort of analyze his breakdown of how he is going to treat this money, it clearly is not a reasonable fee. You know, $950 an hour, which he refers to as his, like some sort of exceptional uh, special fee, premium fee or something, you know, trying to sort of justify why he would be charging $950 an hour (laughs) Uh, for someone who we know only gets $700 per, you know, defense in his public defender role. So, you know, all of these things. He wanted yeah, more yeah. of those but, but remember, even when he meets with the client, the prospective client he thinks is a millionaire, he only quotes, I think, 450 an hour. So, so 950 an hour, is, an hour, I think, is probably something he could not justify as the reasonable billing rate for any of his work. So, you know, I mean, obviously, we all know this is a bribe and we all know he's trying to justify it, but it's sort of fun to break it down and, and see exactly why it doesn't, you know, doesn't fit in with the, the rules. Yeah. Now, you were on another podcast, the uh, Slate's TV Club podcast, and I know that uh, I, I listened to that, and I, I know that they asked you about the dumpster diving incident. And I, if, if, I, if I understood it correctly, you hadn't actually seen the dumpster diving incident or the episode that had that as of the point that you were asked about that and answered that question. 
so here's your chance to, uh, now that you've seen it, uh, to amplify on that. He's rifling through a dumpster uh, looking for uh, evidence. What do you make of that? Was that appropriate for him to do? Yeah, so when they asked me that, it was funny because it was the first question they asked me and it was about something I hadn't seen, and not because I wouldn't have immediately watched the show as soon as it was aired, but they record before the show airs. So they had seen it, but no one else had. So my answer was, based on my understanding of the law, a lawyer can, as long as it's been, as it's been you know, something's been thrown out in a dumpster off the property of the, you know, the person or the private property of the person throwing it out, you can search through it. And that is, that's not a problem. And it's not, an, in my view, an ethical violation. Having then watched the show, I pretty much stand by my answer, which is assuming that that was not on the property of the assisted uh, living facility, which I don't think it was, I think it's probably okay for him to search through the dumpster. Of course, it's a disgusting scene and he ends up, you know, not having, he didn't actually have to search through the dumpster because right next to it was the very clean recycling bill where all the shredded paper was. But the, you know, the issue is still the same. Uh, and I think that that's out and that's been abandoned and it's fine for, for someone to search through it for the most part. What kind of response have you been getting from the legal community to your blog or, or from the non-legal community for the community at large? What, what's the response been? Generally very positive. People seem to really enjoy, it's a different perspective. You know, there are plenty of podcasts and websites and reviews and commentators out there talking about the show generally. And, you know, this is a, a different angle, you know, and I really only talk about the ethics issue. Every, every once in a while I'll throw something else in, for, but for the most part I'm only talking about the ethics issues. And so I suppose probably most of the people reading it are other lawyers, although I think it goes beyond that. I think there are other people out there reading it, uh, you know, but I think people find it's a fun way to learn about this topic, you know, which can, as I said at the beginning, feel like a bit of a dry topic. So it's fun for people to read it in this context and learn about these different issues. Yeah, you, you've posted on your blog from at least at least one lawyer, another ethics lawyer, who took issue with a couple of your conclusions. Have you had much of that? from other lawyers? No, most people who read it have been pretty positive and have not really questioned my analysis, but Don Campbell is a Michigan lawyer. He's actually a good friend. I've known him many years, but I, I suspect he may have um, oppositional personality disorder, <laughs> uh, but I, that's a joke. We won't I mean, quote you on just, that. You know, he loves to argue, you know, and that as lawyers do. And so he, he took issue with two of my conclusions and had a different interpretation of the rules and reached a different conclusion. And so I put, you know, a blog up with his analysis and then sort of my response to that. You know, I felt he had some good points, but it didn't change my mind about what, you know, whether I thought the rules had been violated. But I always think it's great to have another person's perspective. I mean, I it's certainly possible for, for me to miss things or misinterpret things and, and having a, someone else come in and say, well, I see it differently is, is always a great conversation to have. So I'm looking at your blog right now and I'm seeing uh, that it seems to end at episode eight. And uh, there have been two more episodes since then, I think, if I'm counting right. Are you, uh, when are we going to see your uh, next two posts? I'm planning to work on episode nine this weekend and, and hopefully get that up by the end of the weekend. You know, episode 10, obviously I'll do a post on episode 10. I don't know that there's going to be a lot to say in terms of the legal ethics issues because it really 
you know, there's, there are a couple of points that I can make on that, but I think it's more going to be a wrap-up. You know, I'll make a few points about that episode and then more of a wrap-up post. But, you know, I mean, I have a full-time job, so it's hard for me to always get these out <laughs> right away. <laughs> tell, tell me about it. Tell me about it. Uh, I feel your pain. So what happens now with the season over? Does the blog go into a hibernation until the next season comes around? Or what, what plans do you have for it? I was asked the same question when I was interviewed for Above the Law about this, and my thinking has not solidified yet. One option is just to put it on hiatus. I mean, it's going to be almost a year, I think, until the second season starts, which is such a long gap and is a little disconcerting and, and disillusioning. <laughs> but so I, you know, one option is to put it on hiatus and, and focus on something else. One option is to go back to Breaking Bad and start looking at some of those examples, you know, when he becomes quite a different type of lawyer. Uh, so I'm still weighing my options. I think a lot of people are, are, are doing what, what you're doing, which is either binge watching or even waiting until the show is completely over and binge watching. Uh, I'm hoping that people's interest in this show will, you know, prompt a an interest for people who didn't watch Breaking Bad to go back to that show and start watching that on Netflix. So there may be opportunities out there to talk about, keep talking about these issues as people are more and more people are introduced to this show and to the character. Yeah. Well, it's a really good show and you've done a really good job writing about it. Have you heard anything from uh, directly from anybody involved in producing the show? No, I, I don't. Oh, the one, the one thing that happened was that when I tweeted one of my earlier posts, Patrick Fabian favorited the tweet. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. He plays Hamlin. Uh, but in terms of any kind of official response, I haven't received anything from the creators of the show. A Twitter brush with celebrity. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know, I'd love to, you know, they have an insider podcast that they do. I'd love to, but that's really with people on the show. So I don't know if they ever have guests. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm here if they ever want to talk to me. Yeah, I, I think they need you as a script consultant. You can, you can help them there concoct some really unethical uh, situations. <laughs> well, we're just about at the end of our time. We do usually like to give our guests uh, an opportunity to have a closing thought, have the final word. Anything else you'd like to say about, about Saul, about your blog, uh, or about ethics in general? You know, I... I don't really have uh, anything brilliant to say about, you know, other than what we talked about. I think, you know, as I said, it's a, it's a fun show. I think it opens up a lot of issues. I welcome people to read the blog and to, you know, I'm always open to having a conversation about these things. I love when people tell me they think I'm wrong and, and having a dialogue about it. So please, please engage in the conversation. I think these are, are fun things to talk about and, you know, anything to do with lawyering and, professional responsibility and, you know, what does lawyer ethics mean? You know, one thing, I guess if I was going to summarize and say one thing, it's important for people to understand, I think, that legal ethics is very different in many ways from real-world ethics and morality. And I think that might be something that, a misunderstanding that some people have about the way the profession is regulated. So some of the outcomes when you apply these rules don't always dovetail with the way people feel about, you know, what, what it means to do the right thing in sort of just everyday life. So I think that's a, probably a key issue that people might want to be aware of when they're thinking about legal ethics and, you know, how we apply these rules to lawyer conduct. That's and in terms of 
Yeah. <laughs> so it makes me wonder if, if you think that this has helped the public understand legal ethics more or has muddied the issue all the more for them? Uh, I don't think we can blame any fictional character or any TV show about lawyers for people's perceptions of lawyers and the profession. But, you know, certainly, you know, people don't really always understand how how these rules work and how lawyer conduct is regulated. So they may have different expectations than how the real world works, particularly, for example, in the area of confidentiality, where sometimes, you know, the duty to, to hold information confidential can really get lawyers into difficult situations and, and you know, ethical dilemmas with their own conscience. So we, we struggle with these issues. We're still trying to figure them out. And sometimes it's not easy. Well, the blog is The Legal Ethics of Better Call Saul. The writer is Nicole Hyland. She's been our guest today. We really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. Readers, uh, listeners can find that at uh, ethicsofbettercallsaul.tumblr.com or just Google it and you'll find it. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's really been fascinating talking to you and I love reading your blog. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me as a guest. So that brings us to the end of another episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. Join us next time for another great legal topic when you want legal think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.